Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. The trailer, Andy, for Die Hard. We're... <laughs> we're I don't even know. I know that my uh, oh, let's see, this came out in '88. Yes. Uh, so I, I guess I was—I don't know—I was a teenager. I was in the right spot 
for this movie to hit. And it's just mayhem and chaos and bullets. It's it's Nonsense. an 80s action trailer. And I think that's what totally. they were going for. Well, it's it's a mix of 80s action. And I think they were also trying to throw in little bits of uh, that Bruce Willis charm because this was really early in his film career. I mean, most people knew him as the uh, the funny guy in Moonlighting, you know, the kind yeah. of funny guy slash romantic character in that uh, brilliant TV show. And yes, he had been in Blind Date, but that was a comedy. Yes, he'd been in Sunset, also a comedy. Nobody was really expecting this funny guy to be an action hero. And so it's a blend of playing up the action and then little hints of the of the comedy. So you're getting kind of a little mix of both. But it's chaos. It's a pretty chaotic. But it's, it's, it's chaotic. But actually, as I watch it, I'm like, you know what? They're doing a good job in setting it up in a way where I can't really tell what might be a climactic moment toward the end, what might be an action moment toward the beginning. So in context of that and what we sometimes get with trailers, at least it's all over the place. So it, it doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't really clue me in to saying, wow, that trailer is full of spoilers. At, at least it's all over the place <laughs> is high praise. High praise indeed. Uh, this is possibly the least artfully created uh, trailer that I think we've seen since we've started talking about trailers. <laughs> you, I mean, you have a point. Uh, the benefit that they have here, uh, you know, working with a movie like this is they just have a lot of chaos to choose from. Uh, and that they also, I mean, this is a movie which we'll, we'll talk about momentarily. This is a movie about roadblocks, right? This is a movie about a hero overcoming everything that's thrown at him. And uh, so presenting those in order, out of order, it doesn't really matter. They can give away a lot of story in the trailer and still have it not feel spoilery. Yes. Uh, which is definitely to its credit. I mean, that's that's a benefit that they they just get by, you know, working on a film like this. So, uh, but the trailer is, it's nonsense and chaos. And I think, uh, you know, here I am, middle-aged me uh, would be, you know, less swayed uh, by this trailer than certainly middle teened me you know, was you know what i sh- absolutely was what i should have done what we should have done is is gone back and looked at some other like mid to late 80s action trailers to see how it compares yeah. like i'd be really curious to see how this compares to commando or predator or robocop predator, or something robocop, like that you know? yeah yeah, I'm sure they're all the same. Probably. I, like, I, get, I think you're totally right. I mean, in fact, we could probably just start cutting in sequences from all of those movies, and it would still feel like an advertisement for Die Hard. <laughs> it's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home, soon? Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? And New York cop John McClane has come to see his wife. Instead... He's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. There is brilliant because I am interested in the $640 million in your vault. As they are ruthless. And I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill them. Okay. Next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. Or should I say, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you should. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. It's our holiday spectacular. We're heading out to the coast with John McClane to have a few laughs. In the 1998 John McTiernan Christmas classic, Die Hard. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 
the next reel. And if you enjoy this show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You just destroyed a building. Uh... Okay, Andy, I think we should get it out of the way. I think because of the consternation, the German strang around Star Wars, I think there are people who are there. I know there are people who are concerned that we're going to slam Die Hard. Yes, there probably are a few people concerned. that Those we're going people, to- <laughs> those people should rest easy. Tell me they should rest. <laughs> they easy. should rest easy. Rest oh easy, my people. God, I love this movie so <laughs> much. I love it so much. If if I were ever to be accused of of fanboying over a movie, this would be the one. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. I don't care what problems are there. It's sure it's a little racist. Sure it's pretty <laughs> sexist. What I'm sorry. What problems? <laughs> what entire uh, lack of cultural relevance or resonance does this film have? I can't hear you. The 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 things uh the, there are uh, you know I got in trouble when we were talking about Star Trek Six and I said you know it's it's five star film but it has some quibbles. <laughs> Or have some quibbles with it. Uh, you know, I think I'm in the same boat here. I, I do feel that I might have some quibbles with some elements within this film. But, I mean, who cares about those quibbles? This movie is so stinking good. It's way up at uh, uh, in the top uh, tier of my list. It's just brilliant. I always loved it. Always have. Uh, and it's going to be a fun uh, one to kind of kick off this entire franchise and see how the rest of the films hold up. I'm going to pretend that we're not talking about any of the other films because like today, today I want to hold this film precious. Yes. Yes. Uh, This, you know what I, okay. So I I love a lot of things about this, this film. I actually read the book recently. You remember when I read the book? I was all over you. Vaguely. Yeah, I do actually. I I had forgot about that. I'm, uh, what were your thoughts on the book? Remind me. Well, this is, this is, this is the uh, 1979 novel by Roderick Thorpe. Nothing lasts forever. A sequel to his 1966 novel, The Detective. It's like you've read the book, Andy. You know everything there is to know already. (laughs) Oh, really? I'm kidding. That was a joke. That was a gag. So, yes, it is uh, the sequel to The Detective, which makes it weird, right? It's a sequel to another story about a different character. The, the character is, uh, um, it's a, a Detective Joe Leland, right? And he's actually going to um, not some anonymous, you know, big business. He's going to a very specific oil company, right? The, the Klaxon Oil Corporation. And he's visiting his daughter um, at, at her Christmas party. It's not his, you know, estranged wife. Um, and the gang, they are it, Germans, uh, a German gang, and it's led by Anton Little Tony Gruber, uh, and, and Joe Leland, the detective, and, and Little Tony had actually met each other during World War II when Joe was a fighter pilot. So that's all kind of backstory in the narrative, right? That's all in there, um, uh, in the narrative. They have a, a long, history of of one another like uh, having a memory of one another as they encounter one another in the clacks on oil building um my memory of the of the book is that it is much more um of an activist narrative than die hard is right die hard we have these guys who actually care nothing for um the the sort of patriotic act of terrorism uh, in in the movie uh with hans gruber they, they you know they they make a joke out of all of the imprisoned uh, you know, brothers and sisters in arms around the world in different uh, 
uh, terrorist groups. Uh, and in this movie, um, they actually are, you know, exposing uh, Klaxon Corporation's dealings with other terrorists. Like it is a patriotic act uh, that they're taking on. And so uh, it, it has a, a very different worldview or kind of an intention around, um, you know, the acts of, of resistance that are going on around the world. And my rec- what I read about it is that they're actually planning on stealing this $6 million to dump out the windows as an act of protest. Yes, that's exactly right. And and so again, it's it is this is this has this sort of um cultural patriotism at its very heart. Whereas Die Hard, they're they're a bunch of robbers, right? They're gonna be sitting on the beach earning twenty percent. Right. And uh and so it's a it, it is really different. But un- unbelievably, they you know, they actually keep the action beats in the in the movie from the book. Like they took a lot more from the book than I think many other uh, sort of action uh, adaptations do. It's it's definitely one of the more sort of high fidelity adaptations in terms of those particular beats that I thought were uh, were really good. So it's it's a you know it is definitely commercial fiction, right? It is not literary fiction. It is a great read. It is it reads like a rocket ship. I mean, it's you just slam through it. And uh, I happen to you know when I'm on my summer reading bender. Those kinds of rocket ship books are are you know I just love to devour those things. So I'm uh, I was a big fan of the book. I had a lot of fun reading it. What is strange about it for for me is that this book is not about a guy named John McClane. The second book here I am already talking about Die Hard two. The second movie was based on a book as well, not by Roderick Thorpe, not in the same series at all, uh, but and about a different main character. From much of a different perspective, so but also based on a book, and I hadn't known any either of those things when I first became a fan of Die Hard one and two. So. Well, and and this will be fun to continue talking about in this franchise because by the time we get to the third one, that was based on a, a script that was a, a completely different world, and they took again the McLean character and find, found a way to shoehorn him in shoe, shoehorn him into that story as well. So it's interesting yeah. how. All of this kind of continues playing out, at least across the first three films. You know, we've got Anton Little Tony Gruber, not Hans Gruber. We do have Gennaro, Stephanie Gennaro, not Holly Gennaro. Um, But Stephanie is actually having an affair with Harry Ellis, who we do have in the movie. Again, Stephanie is the Uh, daughter, not the wife. Stephanie is the daughter, not the wife. Um, Al Powell makes it. He makes it almost... Uh, un uh, un uh, adapt uh, or unchanged from the book. Dwayne Robinson uh, also makes it. Carl Anton's right hand man. Carl makes it, um, and he again wants nothing but Leland's blood. Uh, and uh, Harry Ellis uh, makes it as well. So you know there are a lot of characters that make it directly across. But uh, John McClane, um, you know. Uh, so getting back into the movie. Well, I, there are. Go ahead. Well, and this is a question for you because you have read the book, and so I'm mm-hmm. really curious because this this film is such a great example of taking this this uh, this uh, you know cop hero that we have and making him just kind of this ordinary uh, guy. Like for the vast majority of the film, he's not even really actively trying to stop the, or I shouldn't say the majority, but for the, the first half of the film, he's not trying to actively stop the terrorists. He's trying to get the cops to show up. He's trying to do everything he can to bring reinforcements in. So, you know, so they can save the day, which is I think is a really interesting idea for, 
uh, kind of the hero of your story. And it's not really until kind of things continue progressing where he's actually actively trying to stop them. I think that's so fascinating. How does that play out in the book? Is it the same or is he really kind of still um, kind of the, the cop who had gone to World War II with, with the bad guy and here he was running around trying to stop them? I would say it's even more to the to the to the latter. It's even more to the John McClane side, right? He is coming back from the Second World War with PTSD. He's struggling, having you know seen what he has seen and experienced what he'd experienced in in as a, a fighter pilot, uh, and he's retired, right? He's not even a cop anymore. Uh, he's, he still carries his, his weapon, but, um, you know, it's because he is terrified of terrorists, right? He's terrified again, as a result of his PTSD, they don't talk about it as PTSD, uh, in the book, if I remember it's, it's, but it's very clearly that's, it's that shell shock, yeah. uh, syndrome, you know? And, and so he absolutely does, is not, does not want, want to get involved in what is happening in the book. He is, he is drawn into it as a result of wanting to keep his daughter safe. Mm. And so when you look at it in terms of narrative beats, right, what does the character want? It is very clear that he is only doing what he's doing to keep his daughter safe and make sure he can do what he, he needs to do to get, to, to keep the people safe in the, uh, but, but, at the expense of his daughter's safety, oh, right? Okay. And that's that's very much, um, you know, what we get in Die Hard too, right? John McClane, we look at what he wants. He wants his wife, you know, safely back to him. And he's got a lot of complex emotions going on in there. And we have that beautiful conversation between them in the bathroom, you know, after, uh, you know, right around fist with your toes, um, where he's trying to, to, you know, come to terms with the fact that they're not together anymore. And he, you can tell he wants her back. Uh, and so his primary motivation in this movie is to is to make sure she's safe in large part i would submit to resolve that conversation that never never got resolved in the bathroom um so it, it really is in terms of character motivation um they it pulls straight from the book uh, and i think it does so very well well and, and they build on that brilliantly also um at the emotional low point at the end of the second act when he's sitting there, um, you know, pulling glass shards out of his feet, talking to Al, saying, you know, just in case I don't make it, tell my wife I love her, that I'm sorry. Like that that whole conversation that he has with Al is really kind of the 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 perfect moment for him to kind of have that uh, moment of resolution with the relationship and finally open yeah. his eyes to the realities of the mistakes that he's been making and that, you know, he needs to be there for his wife. And it's just, it's a beautifully constructed story. And the way that his character arc plays across that is is just, it's, it's incredibly fluid. And it may fall under kind of the classic Hollywood storytelling, but it's also perfect Hollywood storytelling. It's done so well. I think it's even a little bit unfair to call this classic Hollywood storytelling. It's classic storytelling. Oh, right? sure, I mean, sure, yeah, yeah, it, just right. Well, but, but you know, to your point, like we we write off movies like this in large part because they are, you know, they're popcorn movies, and uh, they're entertaining and they're great. But they also they they give us exactly what we want. They have all of the required elements in a story like this, right? I mean, we we have all of the character moments we need. We have all of the emotional moments we need, and. We have a main character who is likable, funny, congenial, and 
all he does in this movie, it seems like it, you know, is is try to overcome the obstacles that are thrown ahead of him. Right. It, it's only in the third act where he starts to take more active control uh, of of the situation and tries to get ahead of his captain. But mostly he's just he's just coming up, you know, again and again and again in front of the obstacles that are thrown up against him in the story. And and watching him react is the fun of this story, whether it's, um, you know, whether it can be written off as formulaic, it's formulaic because we, uh, as you know, human organisms adore the formula in large part, we're wired to it. Well, and, and I should clarify, I meant, you know, uh, classic Hollywood storytelling, just in the sense that in, in the terms of the three act structure of a screenplay, it's hitting the beats perfectly, like everything lines up exactly as it should. Um, yeah, and to it, the stopwatch practice. Right. And it's yeah. done really, really well. I mean, it's 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 spot on perfect. But you're right. In it, Outside of that, just in the world of classic storytelling, it is also uh, yeah. just pretty perfectly constructed. We, we talk a lot about Hans Gruber. He's become kind of the iconic villain. But why is he the iconic villain? What's interesting about Hans is that uh, it's interesting because he's an iconic villain, but um, I think a lot of it goes to the way that uh, the screenwriters, uh, Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza, mainly D'Souza, because I think Jeb Stewart wrote it first and then D'Souza came in to do the rewrites and everything, um, at least the way that the credits are laid out. Um, D'Souza, um, he chose to write the script as if uh, Hans Gruber were the protagonist of the story. He actually said, if he had not planned the robbery and put it together, Bruce Willis would have just gone to the party and reconciled or not with his wife. You should sometimes think all about looking at your movie through the point of view of the villain who is really driving the narrative. And I honestly think that that is one of the smartest ways to have approached this script and look at it through Hans Gruber's eyes and say, okay, he's the one who's driving this entire story. How can I um, work the script to to give him all of the beats so that he's essentially kind of going through the motions of getting everything he wants? You have that brilliant moment early in the film where he's you you don't get all of the plan, but you know the script does a brilliant job of. With its setups and payoffs, and the um, and the telegraphing moment when the police are coming, and and Hans tells his people who are all freaking out, he says, "Police action was inevitable, and as it so happens, necessary." Which is a strange line for you know the villain to be saying. It's like he was wanting police action. What does that mean? And it's a great moment to to kind of set up down the road how he needed them to shut down the grid so that they could actually get into the safe. It's just it's it's brilliantly constructed, but it's done with the cool and calm of a man who knows exactly what he's doing and knows how to make it happen. Yeah, I love that discussion of perspective, too, because, I mean, it really demonstrates in this character of Hans Gruber, it's a guy who, in, in terms of character desire, right, he knows exactly what he wants. He he wants these financial rewards. He wants security that comes from uh, a life without wanting. Uh, you know, he wants to be on a beach earning 20%. And he has come to terms at the point when he uh, reaches the building, Nakatomi Plaza. He's come to terms with everything he is willing to do to achieve those goals. And that makes his character so much stronger. He's not responding uh, to as much as John McClane is. But when it comes time to respond, they've built the rule set around Hans Gruber, the character, so that all of his actions make sense in the scope of his objectives. And I think that is just perfect. When they lose the detonators 
firing those detonators, they, uh, you know, it makes sense what he orders his people to do in order to get those detonators back because we, we understand clearly his objectives. And also earlier when McLean is running around causing problems, it's, it's like just a little bit of a fly in the ointment. It's not so horrible yet that he's just like, okay, he's yeah. in the elevator shaft. Don't worry about it. We'll deal with him later. Let's just get our job done. You'll have some time. You can go hunt him down and do what you want. But right now, let's focus on the job. It's not a big thing that McLean is out there. I mean, it's a little pesky, but it's not awful. And I think that's really interesting, the way that that actually plays out. Andy, would you say that that McLean is pesking Gruber? <laughs> I'd say he is. Is, he, is that what he's doing? Pesking Gruber. That's right. Okay. I just want to... <laughs> Lock that in. Um, the you know I think that's a, that's a really great point because while uh, we we know as an audience that his decision you know not to take McLean more seriously earlier actually uh, is to his own detriment, it still fits within his objectives. He knows what he wants and what he's willing to do to get it, and he is moving forward with the plan because that's his central objective, and uh, and and he doesn't need to worry uh, about. McLean. And, and that ends up being, a, a you know, something that challenges him later. And that is a central conflict between these two characters because he didn't take him more seriously earlier. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it is interesting how he um, is always kind of feeling like he's getting ahead of him or at least staying ahead. And I don't think it's really until um, he ends up with the detonators that um, things start going awry. But then what's great about that is he feels that he's kind of got the upper hand again because, uh, you know, he sees that he has bare feet and the whole idea of shoot the glass, uh, you know, he he's constantly coming up with ways to really kind of stay ahead of McLean. And I think that mm-hmm. is another element that's just so interesting with your villain is that this is a guy who's largely um, smarter than McLean is. And it's only McLean just, you know, pesking him so much that, uh, <laughs> that he gets to, uh, you know, that he has to continue to deal with it. And, and those little moments, I mean, then it, then it just gets down to smart writing, right? And, and smart dialogue and, and the shoot the window, uh, shoot the glass bit is, is smart too, because it's a, it's a, an order of elegance, right? It's an, if you're, they have, very heavy duty firepower like they clearly have grenades they clearly have these flashbangs they clearly could you know they they can do a lot of damage but shooting the glass is not just a a you know an order of you know murderous villainy uh it it, it is an an elegant order it's an it's a I, I don't know there's something that strikes me about it as both gentle and brutal at the same time Yes, even if it's uh, handled handled in a uh, Monty Python esque way, which always makes yeah. me laugh. <laughs> where he says it in German, and Carl's like, "What?" Yeah, and he's like, "What?" Shoot the glass. Shoot oh, the glass. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say that for our American watchers. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's great. It really is. But but back to the the smart writing. This film is set. Uh, it just throughout. It's brilliantly filled with setups and payoffs that work so nicely. Whether it's the fight that Holly and John have at the beginning that gets her so infuriated that she slams their picture down, which becomes a key element later, revealing uh, who John McClane is and who Holly Gennaro is to uh, Hans when he finally picks it up. That's a brilliant moment. The fact that he, you know, fists with your toes that uh, he learns right in the very first scene in the movie um, and how that puts him into this vulnerable position of being barefoot through the entire film. 
um, the, the like I said, the police action that Hans was waiting for that was great. Uh, the fantastic moment of Al getting set up with you know he's kind of this desk jockey. He's afraid of guns now, and then he's the one who kind of does that final save at the end. And even the famous you know the the conversation that they have about you know you're just a cowboy, John Wayne, all this. I was always partial to Roy Rogers, and then then he kind of refers to him as you know. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mister Cowboy? And that sets up the brilliant Yippie Kaye line that we have yeah. through the entire franchise that has kind of created this entire uh, thing in and of itself. One of the things that that uh, Willis said in an interview uh, when talking about his character uh, is, you know, in the research that he'd done with the detectives that that he'd worked with to try to build this character, uh, one of the things that, that came out of it is that uh, adrenaline, when you're in this kind of a situation, uh, adrenaline brings out a weird sort of dark comedy, right? This black comedy, like the, so much of of Willis talking to himself, of Willis's banter with, um, you know, with uh, Alan Rickman. So much of that that character banter is based on you know his research around adrenaline making you funnier or making you at least appear funnier. It's that whole thing, you know, if you if if I wasn't laughing, I'd be crying that comes out of being in a situation like this. And so much of this was Willis, you know, doing the research and trying to find a, a more authentic approach, not just, you know, trying to be a, a smart ass screenwriter, uh, but but really trying to capture in the moment what it feels like to be so stressed, uh, you know, and and in a in sort of mortal peril, and and I actually really like knowing that uh, about you know the research. It makes it a little bit more um, authentic uh, of an experience, uh, I think, to watch him. Is that also why Bruce Willis is so perfect at talking to himself? <laughs> I think he's just naturally great at talking to himself. I imagine he does it all the time. There are some actors who do that um, not so well, but Bruce Willis yeah. is so good at just like running around a room, having a conversation with himself. He does it so well here. It's just fantastic. I, I do have a few questions about some of his uh, his thinking, and maybe this is you know the, the downside to adrenaline running through your body in these sorts of situations. Yeah. Situations, but you've got okay. So I get that he's trying to get um, Al's attention, and so he throws a body out the window to kind of scare him and and get his uh, get his uh, blood uh, you know moving so that he actually you know gets the the police coming and everything. But then he starts shooting the gun at him. Now I <laughs> I have to question. Okay, at first I was like, oh, maybe he's just shooting the gun around the car. But then you have like all the the hits on the tops of the car, and it's all sparking and right. stuff. And I'm like, okay, maybe the maybe the the terrorists are shooting at him. But I'm like, no, it pretty much is Bruce Willis standing there with a gun in the window. What if he killed the guy? It's like I have to question his logic in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, so, so we'll write that off to the trauma of the, the, the of mortal peril, <laughs> right? Too. Likewise, when yeah. he's trying to get the crowd down, I mean, they're all on the rooftop, and sure, they're panicking and everything, but they know who he is, and he talks to. Well, some of them do. He's talking to to uh, Holly's assistant, and you know, she's not up here and everything, but he can't get them to move down, so he starts shooting <laughs> over their heads. Granted, but still, it's like that's a terrible way to get people's attention. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I guess I guess it is. I let that one go because he is obviously <laughs> shooting up over their head. But I have to imagine that some of them are going to be in so much peril that they just pass out, just drop where they stand. <laughs> right? They right. Just like this did not work the way you intended it to work. Exactly. And then he's going to be dragging the pregnant woman off the yeah. roof. And <laughs> right, right, right. Let's get really dark. I mean, how oh, many my. of them would just say, "I give up. I'm running off the building." And you have this whole lemming situation where oh, a whole geez. crowd of people flies off the top of the building. It's terrible. It is. Terrible. Who would do that? Right, I know. Terrible. 
And, and then uh, can we talk about walkie talkies? Because yes. I, <laughs> I know you had this question too. Oh my goodness! How do they work? <laughs> yeah. The, well, it's it's really funny because the whole idea of interrupting someone on a walkie talkie is just not realistic in the world of walkie talkie <laughs> usage. I've used enough walkie talkies on set where it's like when somebody else is talking on a walkie talkie, you can't push the button down and interrupt them. All it you know it it doesn't work that way. And it works effectively in the screenplay. And, you know, it, largely you just don't pay attention to that sort of thing. But it's just like, come on, that's not how walkie-talkies work. Likewise, there are times where, and I can't remember what Bruce Willis is doing, but there's a moment where Al is listening and he hears him doing something. It might be when he's pulling the, the glass out of his feet. And he's like, you okay there, Roy? And and uh, it's just like, so what? He was doing this while he was also holding the button on the walkie-talkie <laughs> so that Al could hear him making grunts and groans? Well, I, okay, to be fair, yeah. there are some brands of walkie-talkie that have a, the box, uh, yeah. a hold, uh, the, the open box, right? Yeah. You, can, you can just turn it on. But if that was the case, like, Al wouldn't be able to talk back. Because a walkie-talkie, you can either walkie or you can talkie. You cannot walkie <laughs> and talkie. Oh yes, yeah. It's it's kind of silly. It's it's one of those things. It's definitely a screenwriter's world here, where this is how walkie talkies work within the context of this film, because it's not very realistic and largely it's not something that's ever bothered me. But it's just definitely a fun talking point. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I do want to talk about the terrorist count also because I thought it was very funny as we were going through. My wife and I were trying to count the terrorists because they say it's a dozen terrorists. You got twelve, and and you're counting mm-hmm. down. And there's this point where they're like, well, uh, I think Al says to the FBI guys that there are seven, uh, you know, we're down to seven, you know, because of this guy in there, blah, blah, blah. And then so we're counting down. Okay, so then they got him and then they got him and now we're down to five and now we're down. And then we get to this point where we thought we were down to because uh, let's see, he he'd gotten Carl, who is up in the roof uh, we, and the the one Asian German guy. And then, uh, and then uh, the uh, uh, fantastic little bit with um, uh, our, um, Argyle crashing into Theo. So we're down to two. But then there's all of a sudden this <laughs> mysterious young terrorist guy <laughs> that is running out of the room, and, and McLean uh, pops him uh, before he goes to confront the uh, the Texan guy and Hans. And I'm like, wait, 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 where did this young kid come from? This young terrorist that all of a sudden just showed up. And my wife and I were cracking up about it because in the credits, we're counting, okay, did we get it wrong? And there are 13 listed. And so now now my wife and I have this joke uh, about this whole idea. It's a baker's dozen of terrorists that the film actually has. <laughs> okay. It's just a- See, I, I thought of it differently, Andy. For me, it's Stockholm Syndrome. They didn't think talk about this in the movie at all, but I think one of the hostages converted- in the um, middle of the story and picked up a gun. I was like, well, if you can't beat him, everybody. Yeah, right. I love it. <laughs> How can I get in on this? <laughs> six, six and a half million? I'll sign me up. Right. I, I'd like a piece of that action. I'll take a little bit. Yeah, well, just he, right off the top. He did look like the, the young uh, intern that you know had, yeah. hadn't settled in his <laughs> career yet. <laughs> this is a this is good opportunity. That's right. That's right. I, I saw an opportunity and I took it. In Die Hard on Broadway, that would be played by Matthew Broderick. Oh, <laughs> uh, on, on, in Die Hard the Musical, I think they were talking about that. It's the young intern. It's from the perspective of the young intern. I love it. Oh, we, how we see, need how that. to succeed in terrorism. <laughs> oh, Merry Christmas, folks. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, oh. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about how. <laughs> <if we> can... <laughs> 
oh man, I want to, I want, uh, I want to listen to the soundtrack. I do too. I, I, I musical want, right now. I want, I want to hear the song of uh, McLean at his uh, emotional low point. It's, I hear uh, it's Sondheim. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think Sondheim is. Too, I think Sondheim. The, the music is incredibly mm-hmm. complex. Fantastic. I can't wait to see the uh, the inevitable high school version. <laughs> In, into into <laughs> the opening track into Nakatomi. It's so gloomy. <laughs> Uh, or is it called uh, California? <laughs> With a K. <laughs> they made some changes. Oh, my. Okay. How did this movie get made, Andy, please? Goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, so this was just, it was so interesting. I did not realize this, but because this was a uh, the based on the book that was uh, a sequel to the 1966 novel, The Detective, that was a that was a book that had been adapted with Frank Sinatra as the lead in the movie The Detective, which um, I haven't seen. I've heard some things about, but I really just don't know much about it. But what I found so interesting is that Frank Sinatra had contractual obligation to be in any sequel uh, to that movie. And so uh, 20th Century Fox actually had to offer the role to Frank Sinatra before uh, anybody else because of that fact, which I think is hilarious. I can't even imagine Frank Sinatra. Not only can I not imagine him in the role, I can't imagine him as a 72-year-old man <laughs> being oh this character, which is how You know what's weird about that, Andy, though? That's, that would have fit the book better. That's crazy. That's yeah. You're, it's you're crazy. right. It would have because he. I mean, yeah. World War Two and everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is bananas. Puts a very strange spin on the entire thing. Maybe on Broadway again. <laughs> in <laughs> I could I could see that Sinatra and Broderick. I can see that that I can see that billing. I can see it, but not the movie. But not the certainly movie. not the movie we got. A lighthearted comedy, maybe. Yes. So. Um, after that, um, Fox said, "Okay, well, uh, let's get Arnold Schwarzenegger in. Uh, kind of, we'll make this." Uh, we'll- <laughs> right. Sinatra turned it down. Uh, I can think of only one alternative. It's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know. <laughs> well, it's you know, obviously Sinatra was just the the obligated uh, contractual nod to offer it to him. But then they were trying to go, "Okay, well, we need to make this a big action movie. So let's get Schwarzenegger in. We'll, we can adapt it to be a sequel to Commando." Uh, that didn't uh, pan out. They offered it to Stallone. That didn't. He said no. Don Johnson said no. Harrison Ford said no. Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, all these people were offered the part and they all said no. They were talking to CinemaScore, which is the the company that um, tracks um, audience reactions to movies. And they said, hey, this Bruce Willis guy, he's very popular with the crowds. The demographic data hit exactly what they were looking for. And he wasn't definitely McTiernan or 20th Century Fox's choice for the role, but the demographic data from CinemaScore was enough to persuade them to cast him. What was interesting about that is the the information from CinemaScore also um, kept them from when they did the marketing for the movie. They said, whatever you do, don't market it with Bruce Willis, at, like with his face on the posters or the billboards or anything. Market it um, just focusing on the action, not this fact that this comedy star is helming your action movie. Um, all of which they did, and they they cast it with Bruce Willis. And he got paid $5 million to be in the role. Which at the time was unheard of for somebody who was of his caliber to kind of uh, lead a film. Um, certainly stars like, uh, at the time, Warren Beatty or Dustin Hoffman would get that much, but not an un, 
well, an untested movie star. So it was pretty interesting that Bruce Willis got paid so much. And they justified it, though, saying, hey, you know what? He's got he's to be the man leading the charge of this film, so we're going to give him the money to, uh, to be the face of the movie. And uh, sure enough, it worked. So there he is. What else is interesting is this is a movie where, now I don't know how the book ends, but the movie, they didn't have the ending sorted out yet when they were writing it. And so, um, which I think is funny because when you see the terrorists arrive, you know, they pull in in the Pacific Courier truck into the into the parking garage of the building and you see them open up the back. All it is in the back is a big empty shell. It's just a, you know, a giant empty truck. And all the terrorists get out and they run inside and start their terrorizing. At the end of the movie, the back of the truck rolls up and an ambulance drives out. (laughs) One, that truck was not big enough at the beginning to actually fit an ambulance inside. Two, (laughs) they already showed us it was empty. Oh, these things that you don't pay attention to when you're just going along for the ride. But uh, it's clear that uh, they were really not, um, you know, they just didn't know what they were doing yet with the ending, which I think is pretty funny. Let's uh, let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Yes, let's do it. So uh, the the deep scene dive we're talking about today. This is the the, the meeting between McLean and Gruber when Gruber was uh, checking the the uh, explosives on the roof, and uh, it ends up being discovered by McLean. And so Gruber changes his accent and uh, pretends to be a hostage. Uh, why did we why did we select this? I think we picked it because it's it really is uh, a brilliant moment where you have your hero and villain um, meeting each other face to face for the first time. Uh, you know, it's it's a, an hour and a half into the film. It's this it's this uh, really just brilliant moment of these two actors as they kind of come together. You don't know exactly how it's going to play. And I think that these two actors I mean, this this scene really for me just cemented how brilliant these two were together. And you get this uh, this interesting tension between the two of them. You get this doubt, the way that it's written. Like, does does McLean know that this is Hans? Does Hans, uh, you know, is Hans going to be able to sneak away and get his gun that he so foolishly kind of leaves off to the side? Um, it's, it, it's constructed in a really brilliant way. And it really kind of puts that audience... Um, uh, you know, mindset in this in this place of doubt where you just don't exactly know what's going to happen, and it's just a beautifully constructed scene. Um, not only that, but that it's the moment that leads to the fantastic reveal of uh, our hero is has bare feet, and let's uh, that that's a great way to get him. It's perfect, also because of the performances of these two guys in in you know Gruber and Alan Rickman's Gruber. We actually discover that Rickman can do a pretty convincing American accent. It's not completely convincing, but it's pretty convincing and uh, and convincing enough, but probably not convincing enough to uh, you know John McClane, whose you know real showpiece in this scene is you know his crafty intellect, right? That he's actually. It, it turns out in the second half of the scene, he's already ahead of uh, of you know Rickman and of Gruber and was all along, which I I love. Right, he hands him the empty gun, uh, and um, then we get that reveal uh, as Gruber starts speaking German. The camera work here is well, it's it's great. It's it show we've got a lot of wonderful sort of low angles, interesting ways to portray the faces of these characters. But the final reveal when we have that uh, that shot with Willis's face. 
uh, looking back over his shoulder, blurred out, we have Gruber speaking German into the radio, is just fantastic. It is the way to to sort of reveal uh, who these characters really are. Well, and on top of that, I mean, the first, the it's we should say it's it's split. Uh, we've got an interruption of the FBI guys uh, partway through the sequence that we're discussing. But you've get you get this uh, this brilliant change in the way that the the scenes are constructed. The first part of it, where it starts off with Hans going up to the roof to check on the the detonators and everything, and then kind of him meeting McLean and all of that sort of stuff. That's all shot um, effectively. It all works really nicely. But when we come back to it after the FBI interruption. The whole thing is shot Dutch angle. Everything is slightly tilted and you get uh, just a little more of this sense of that. It's almost like that cinematic uh, unease that that it does. It, it puts you in this place where it's like something feels slightly amiss here. I can't quite figure out what it is, uh, who's playing who. And I think it's done so well. Also, I think what it does is it highlights just the smarts that Hans has because you know, um, McLean asks, oh, what's your name? And he says, Bill, uh, Bill Clay, who is on the board of employees. And it just, I don't know, it's just one of those moments that again goes to highlight how smart Hans is that he almost had pre-set up this alibi. Like if he gets caught, oh, I'm going to play like I'm this, this Bill Clay guy who's at this building. Um, but the whole thing plays out with these Dutch angles, and it builds to that uh, that just brilliant payoff, like you said, when Hans uh, speaks German into the walkie-talkie and pulls the gun on McLean. It's beautiful. The, the, it, to your point about all the Dutch angles, I mean, this is Jan de Mont, uh as cinematographer on this thing, and um, he... Uh, he he just really knows how to uh, move camera. And it, the only thing that would make this sequence, I think, more intense is a minor walking baseline. You know what I mean? Like, boom, 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 boom. Like, it'd be, it's a perfect kind of noir film. Put this in black and white. And, uh, and, and suddenly it's, you, you complete the picture. It's really, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, homage of these two, um, these two sort of heads of their, uh, respective narratives. I think it's just great. My my favorite shot in the sequence is actually the moment after McLean gives him the gun and says, "Come on," starts walking, and you the camera is Dutch angle on the ground right behind McLean as he's kind of as he starts walking off, and then you just see uh, Hans's cigarette hit the ground. And with his fancy dress shoe, he just kind of snuffs his cigarette. And you know exactly what's about to happen. It's just, it's such a great setup for the moment. So it's uh, it is. a great uh, shot. Uh, production design, um, Jackson Govia, art design, John Jensen, and set design, Philip Leonard. Y- you know, this, this film, this movie was shot at the Fox Plaza Century City. Uh, and, you know, m- much of the design of this um, scene is you know it's rooftop accoutrements right it's it's hvac systems and grates for the first half right the, the second half it's like they go back down into a, a i don't know which floor but it's a floor that has some office stuff and you know it's still kind yeah. of under construction like so much of it what was so great about filming in in fox plaza is it was actually under construction still and so they actually had some empty floors which worked really well in context of what they were trying to do here and so it gave them a lot of kind of pre-created sets which worked really nicely obviously some of it was stage and stuff that they recreated but they did a great job what i thought was funny is that fox made this movie they they funded it and everything they also shot it in fox plaza in their property 
But um, you know, McTiernan actually said, you know, they still charged us, uh, you know, <laughs> to use their their building. <laughs> and I was like, of course they did. He's like, I don't know how much money they made, but they charged standard rates. It was still a really expensive property to shoot on. <laughs> And I was laughing about that, and I was telling my wife, who does property management, she's like, well, of course they do. It's a totally different entity, and she totally justified the whole thing. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't <laughs> right. argue about this with you, but still. <laughs> right, right. Maybe not the right audience. <laughs> right, exactly. She's like, yeah, of course. They better. She's totally on their side, the property <laughs> side. That's so funny. Your wife's <laughs> such an industrialist. <laughs> right. Uh, the, it, it's a very cool, uh, building. I love them talking about shooting there, you know, trying to, can we, can we find a location where we can, it's a real building that'll let us, you know, fire machine guns and blow stuff up. Right. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. I, you know, just a comment on the, the effects and the, the miniature effects. This is not at work in this particular scene, uh, obviously since this is a predominantly dialogue scene, but, um, the, the miniature effects, building the building and making the building look right as they blow up entire floors uh, of the building um, were really cool. And largely the guy behind the the miniature stuff and the force perspective stuff is, is a guy named Thane Morris uh, at Boss Effects. And, and they had both a, a force perspective elevator, which I, I didn't know how they would do this, but they, they had a, you know, however it was a uh, how many floors, probably 32 floors or something of this elevator that they built in just, uh, you know, a, a 12, uh, I want to say it was like 12 feet or something like that. It was very, very small. No, that's not, it's much too small. I can't, now I can't remember. I didn't write down the numbers. Anyway, the whole point was this building long elevator shaft, they built it very, very short and everything got smaller. You know, it was, it was little tiny lights as they get shorter and shorter down there to drop the, the, uh, the chair with the explosives on. I thought that was really cool force per- perspective, uh, on the Gruber fall, but they still dropped Rickman about 40 feet, 70 feet uh, off of this 70 feet. 70 oh, feet. I, I heard him in an interview and he, he, he said it was uh, 40 feet, uh, that, but his memory was clearly jarred by the fall. Um, just drop the actor is what they said. <laughs> so he said, you know, we had no CGI, so they just said drop the actor. So I got to fall. Um, uh, and and the uh, but the way they built the building, right? They had two models of the building. One was about thirty feet tall, and that was the building in its entirety. And one was just a, uh, a just like the top twelve floors. In order to you know actually. Um, you know, do close-ups of the granite face, granite and black glass face of the building. They actually went and just photographed high-resolution photographs of of the the side of the real Fox Plaza building and pasted them onto this scaffolding. <laughs> um, so all of it looks like a you know real night reflection because it was a real night reflection, but they could only shoot it in certain angles. <laughs> the reflections would be off. So funny. Uh, I thought that was very cool. Yeah, it was really interesting the lengths they went to to uh, to make this work and just the complexities of filming there. Again, it doesn't tie to our scene, but just the fact that like you know they they have to blow up that entire third floor at one point when the explosive go off, and and how how complicated that was with spreading glass everywhere and the amount of work they had to do to do it, and they had to promise Fox, you know, we can have all of this done in a weekend. And, uh, you know, you'll come in on Monday morning and everything will be cleaned up. You know, all of that stuff will be uh, out of the grass and the uh, where they had been driving the vehicles and all that stuff. They they had like a weekend to kind of get a lot of that stuff done, which is crazy. <laughs> and then the helicopters, when they have the helicopters flying in, it took like six months of negotiations with the city to get them to be able to fly those helicopters through the roads like or just over the roads like they did and that and come up over the building. 
the city only gave them two hours to do everything with the helicopters. So you look at what they accomplish in those two hours. It's a lot of stuff. I think McTiernan said he had somewhere between six and nine camera teams filming all the different shots that they needed. There was a funny story that of the uh, uh, the scale helicopter, right? The the miniature helicopter that they, they were filming, not at Fox Plaza, but on boss's site out in the parking lot uh and the first helicopter they brought in to do the to do the the destruction on top when the helicopter takes out the roof um they brought it in they said the guy who was who was running this thing was amazing he was incredibly talented and then something happened and the helicopter careened into the scaffolding at the base of this giant building that we built this top 12 floors and blew up and we thought oh my god it's going to take down the entire set of the building that we actually need to take down with an explosion, but it's going to do it on accident. That was, and it didn't, and they didn't, but, but uh, I thought that would, that was one of the little bits of helicopter blowing up helicopter irony. It's funny. Cause you look at stuff like this and how brilliant it ended up working out and everything. Um, but it's also, you can see why with stories like that, why, you know, people argue now, let's just do it in CG because we can get yeah. everything to go exactly as we want. We can get the helicopter to move exactly as we want. It's not going to accidentally, you know, knock down the set, all of that sort of stuff. You can see why there is a logic to it, even if there are times where you're watching the CG and go, gosh, I wish that I was just watching real, uh, real miniatures and, and real explosions. Right. So what do you think of uh, uh, Bruce and his shirt? Uh, Marilyn Vance did the costumes. And here we have this uh, man running around in a in a, a wife beater that starts white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then just gets filthy <laughs> over the course of uh, our time with him. And then he's not wearing it anymore. I like that it goes. Uh, it's about the time where he's in the elevator shaft, I think. It goes from smudgy white to all of a sudden... It is so saturated with like dirt and grease. It's like, what? How did he just get it that dirty? Yeah, I think they actually said that the costume when it was when he was crawling in the air vents and he comes out, they actually were debating um, when he when he jumps out of the air vent to actually have some dirt fall down first, just to uh, to highlight how the shirt got so dirty suddenly. <laughs> Uh, because I, it looks like he instantly started sweating coffee. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about Michael Kamen? This is a score that I think works brilliantly in context of the film. It's not like a, a score that's just easy to listen to. It's not like, uh, you know, a fantastic, um, just, uh, you know, bunch of tunes to put on. But I think what Michael Kamen does works really well in context of the film. Um, in particular, I mean, his score is great, but what I think uh, I really enjoy is the fact that he took um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy, and kind of adapted it into uh, kind of a leitmotif for the terrorists. And you get these little hints of it throughout. Um, I love how that kind of hits in there, here and there, uh, so nicely. I the the very first thing we have here the the sleigh bells oh, yes. uh, as he's standing as as Willis comes up to the to the luggage carousel uh, the sleigh bells start in the very opening of the film and they're detuned a little bit do you notice that it, yeah I find that amazing it is an amazing touch uh, that the that the sleigh bells don't sound quite right right it is a wonderful nod to the not quite rightness that is about to come in this movie I think it's terrific. What's interesting about that, Pete, is that sets up for a lot of people 
the ever uh the never-ending debate about whether this is a christmas movie or not <laughs> is it a debate anymore i think this it is it is a, no it is a debate I, I people will forever debate the idea of a christmas movie is only a movie that um that deals with christmas themes at the holidays this takes place at christmas largely everything about it is you know kind of set in christmas but it's a it's a robbery movie it in no way is a christmas story so there is kind of a debate about that i'm firmly in the camp that says this is just a flat out christmas movie I don't care what those naysayers say. Um, I think it's more a Christmas movie than something like Lethal Weapon. Um, but, I, you know, I still could say that kind of still is a Christmas movie, too. But, you know, it's this one definitely is. It's locked because we have positioned it in the canon of next real holiday uh, discussions. <laughs> and if we say it, it's official. I say the debate is over. But, you know, you've got uh, Run DMC. Uh, you've got uh, what is the song that they have Christmas and Hollis <laughs> that you have yeah. uh, at the beginning of the film? You've got uh, Let It Snow ending the film, uh, Von Monroe singing. Um, it's you know, it feels pretty uh, firmly planted in the land of Christmas. Uh, so I I'm totally fine calling it a Christmas movie. I think uh, it's uh, my wife. It's it's her annual um, when she's wrapping Christmas presents. It's her annual uh, movie to put on and and wrap presents to. So it just it feels very holiday ish. I've got to ask. There is a uh, according to the the IMDb diehard soundtrack. Uh, we've got. You know, Singing in the Rain, Winter Wonderland, Christmas in Hollis Skeletons by Stevie Wonder, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Sammy Kahn and Jules Stein. Uh, and then we have a bunch of uncredited stuff on the soundtrack, uh, including, as we've said, Ode to Joy, Jingle Bells, Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 3 in G Major. Uh, we've Got Each Other from Man on Fire yep. uh, in 1987 by John Scott. Resolution yep. and Hyperspace yep. from Aliens 1986, James Horner. Um, and let it snow, let it snow, let it snow is obviously uh, credited again as hummed by Reginald Vell Johnson. <laughs> I, I like that. Where were bum, the, buddy, uh, where bum. was the aliens, uh, bit? Okay. So there, there were a few temp tracks that were left in, uh, Mike, uh, McTiernan didn't like some of the, the bits that Michael came and wrote right at the very end of the film. Um, the two things that you just mentioned, man on fire, uh, John Scott's, uh, score from the 1987 film, um, when McLean and and uh, Al Powell see each other for the first time. That is mm-hmm. the that is the music from Man on Fire. Um, it was a temp track that they had in the editing, and he just didn't like what came and did, so he left that. Likewise, when Carl pops up and he's like, Rah! and you know the the final yeah. moment there, and Al, that was aliens. Yeah, and Al pulls his gun out and shoots. Yeah, that's the uh, the uh, climactic moment when uh, the alien gets blasted out of the space lock. Uh, the alien queen. It's uh, James Horner's story. I, I know it, it always you, sounds so familiar. It, when I, whenever I watch both of those movies, of course, it's those movies because I've seen them too many times. I've never seen. Man I never on associate. Fire, so I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to what? tell you there. I've never seen any of the Man on Fire versions that exist. That's a problem. Maybe we'll do a Man on Fire series one day. Okay. I don't know if it's worth it, but <laughs> yeah, you totally distracted me with that. <laughs> Yeah, but it, I think it is funny that aliens, um, and it's funny because I've always recognized it too, but I never put it together until I was actually researching this. Uh, so yeah. there you go, two and two. How is it that we've never talked about John McTiernan? <laughs> he's a director who, in my head, I always feel like he's done more 
than he actually has. Like when I look at his yeah. list, and he's, there's only twelve credits, actually eleven with an un, an, uh, you know, something that's been announced. Um, he really just hasn't done much, and uh, that always surprises me. I mean, he hasn't directed a film since 2003's Basic with uh, John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson that um, uh, didn't do so well. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what kind of happened, but I, for a time, he was kind of like one of the big action directors in the uh, 80s, early 90s. Let's see. I don't think I ever saw Nomads uh, with uh, Leslie Ann Down and Pierce Brosnan. I didn't either. Um, but after that, that was his first uh, director credit. Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Medicine Man with Sean Connery and Larry Bracco. I didn't, I didn't, I have no memory of it if I saw it, but I'm, I'm Meh. cataloging that as never seen. Meh. And then Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance. So uh, from 87 to 95, uh, he was pretty steady with movies that were very high on my list of action esteem. I'd even go up to, I mean, maybe not 13th Warrior, but the Thomas Crown Affair remake that he did in 99. I quite enjoyed that remake. I did too. Again with uh, Pierce Brosnan, I yeah. thought that was great. I think we. I, I, I'm not sure. Are we kind of alone there? Um, that would be an interesting one to do in a movies in the remake series again because yeah. I remember thinking that they did a pretty good job with the remake. Um, so I'd be curious to revisit the pair of those. I I can't remember yeah. what the general consensus was of that as a remake, but I remember mm, enjoying I think, it. I think we might be on our own. We might be. It's over the six. It's star, happened before. Uh, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Anyway, um, okay, so what do we think of John McTiernan uh, in as in his direction of this film? What I like about McTiernan is he definitely is a director who is is always thinking about um, uh, about his job as a director and listening to him talk about um, just kind of decisions he makes and uh, things he thinks about. Uh, you know, I, there there may be elements in some of his films that I don't like as much or some of his films that I just don't think are as good. But I think he is a very um, aware director and listening to him just kind of talking about like, like he was really inspired by some of the um, the European films that had come out in the earlier 80s. And just the way that the Europeans were moving their camera in a way that was more of uh, kind of not necessarily movement just based on character movement, but based on kind of emotional beats and stuff. And I, I found that really interesting um, that that he latched onto that and was really inspired by that, which is one of the reasons actually he brought on Jan de Bont as his cinematographer, because he felt Jan de Bont's camera work in some of his earlier European films had that sort of movement, and he wanted to bring that over. Um, and I, I think that is something that is um, very prevalent throughout this film and something that I think uh, just another addition that makes this film feel so uh, just modern and alive as opposed to if you go back to some older action films that may not have as much of that sort of um, movement in them. I think he's a smart director. I think he is too. You can see little hints of that movement. It, the scene that sticks out to me is the scene where we first see um, it, it's where Gruber is leading uh, Joe Takagi into the executive suite. Uh, and, you know, it opens with, the, you know, when Alexander you saw the breadth of his domain, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. I just love that entire sequence, the way the camera moves in particular, but that this introduces. Uh, uh, McLean 
to Gruber from a distance, from under the table that has the model on it. There's this great shot where we have the camera, um, uh, it, it moves down. It's, we've, we're focusing on McLean as he's on his knees peeking over the table. And as the camera moves down, following McLean uh, to under the table, it, it pulls focus from McLean to this uh, truck that's in the foreground, a model truck in the foreground on the table, and then back to McLean as if our, you know, our eyes are changing focus with it and moving under the table with him. It's just a really artful move. And, and this film is full of a lot of those little moments of, of how he chooses to move the camera to focus on little details uh, and, and pull in and out of the full depth of the scene. And I, I think it's, it's really smart, but also artful, particularly in a movie, again, that is so commercial action. It's so strange that I, I noticed that exact same camera movement. <laughs> I'm just like, it's such an interesting thing to for us to pull focus to. But here we are kind right? of really paying attention to that model for some reason. And I, I found that a very interesting uh, element that he chose to do. So yeah, pretty well, interesting. It's a funny homage to the distance that we have to attune ourselves to in the scene, right? Because we have to learn from his position, from McLean's position under the table, we have to learn what's going on in the other room and we can't hear it as well. So it puts us in a, a position of deficit. Um, and and I, I find that, you know, what he does visually with what we also have to deal with orally uh, is is really special in that sequence. Yeah, it's it's really nicely done as as we are very much um, often with McLean as he's kind of sneaking in and eavesdropping on this uh, pretty horrific uh, scene that he sees play out before him. It is really violent. And in fact, it, this is the most violent scene in the in the film, I think, when you look at just straight human on human violence. Did this strike you at all when this is when Gruber um, assassinates Takagi? I don't know if I'd say it's it's the the most violent. It certainly is the most violent in context of a, um, a straight up assassination uh, that just cold blooded murder. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty yeah. horrific the way that that Hans is just like fine and just shoots him. It's pretty horrific. I mean, I think there's also because it's the, not there's no context of a fight here, right? This yeah, is just right. an assassination, and that's, absolutely that's something that was kind of new. Well, I think that's why because I mean later, I mean, I think it's pretty horrific and bloody when the the terrorist is running toward McLean and he shoots out his legs, and you just see all the squibs going off on his legs as the guy yeah, collapsed right. out. That's pretty awful and bloody uh, as right. uh, as as great a moment as it is in context well and the hanging of carl at the end i think is also as he's just beating him up they're beating each other up and he hangs him with a chain you're right there are a lot of pretty horrific moments but you're right but in context of the assassinations this is really um pretty overt and and powerful and i think it's interesting again going back to uh, uh john mctiernan and and some of his decisions about making this movie he was really hesitant when he first signed on to make this film that was adapted from this book because he really didn't want to do a summer movie, kind of an action summer light movie that dealt with terrorists because, you know, by nature of terrorists and terrorism, he felt it was such a dark subject and you couldn't make a fun movie about it. And he was really nervous about that. And so he really did latch onto this idea of them being robbers um, and uh, and kind of eliminated the, or had them, the writers, eliminate the whole terrorist element out of the book and, and use that as kind of their cover. And I think that worked so effectively in in um, making this film a, a much more of a quote summer movie, um, while still allowing these dark moments with Hans 
to be the effective bad guy and and have the dark moments still within context of the story. Uh, shall we bust through the other cast members we haven't mentioned uh, in sort of a little bit of a rapid fire? Bust away. Here we go. Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro McLean. Bruce Willis saw her in the movie Heart Like a Wheel and thought she'd be great in this. And she is. I mean, she is so much more than the damsel in distress. And I think that's a, a highlight is having her as the wife. Yes, he does kind of have to save her at the end, but she's she's a pretty uh, tough cookie. And I think she holds her own against Hans. Reginald Vell Johnson, Al Powell. Love him. Um, I think this kind of is the thing that gave him his career because it, it, it set him up as such a brilliant um, partner, kind of a sidekick, if you will, for McLean, that really kind of gave him his career in the, in the TV show Family Matters. I, I, I don't know if I can effectively put uh, piece those together, but I think judging by the timeline, it lines up pretty well. I really like Reginald Vell Johnson. I wish he were in, uh, you know... Um, I, I don't know. The guy's got 104 credits. So saying that I, I wish he were in more stuff uh, is is a little bit unfair. He's in a lot of stuff and he's working actively right now, but he's working actively on on things that I don't think um, show off enough of Reginald Rolf Johnson. He, he feels like a guy who's been a, uh, a little bit too typed. And that's unfortunate. He was in the first Die Hard. We'll talk about him next week in Die Hard 2. But he was also Sergeant Al Powell in the Die Hard Nakatomi Plaza video game that came out in 2002. The Die Hard Vendetta video game that also came out in in 2002. And he was in the short film, A Die Hard Christmas Party with Reginald Vell Johnson in 2013. He's he's kept his uh, Die Hard career active. (laughs) You're right. You're, you've got it. You, uh, you're right. <laughs> I should have seen all of those. Uh, how about Paul Gleason as Deputy Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson? This is an interesting character because I think that there is um, some debate about uh, if if um, his uh, just constant naysaying to everything that uh, Sergeant Powell uh, is doing is uh, effective police work or if he's really just kind of um, you know undermining the story a little bit I um, you know I would say that he is a quibble that I have but certainly nothing that's ever driven me too crazy um, I don't really mind it I know Roger Ebert really didn't like him as a character um, but you know for me it's like you know he's he's kind of the foil and I get it I do too. I think he's funny. The foil actually serves a really good purpose in this film. We get a little humor at, that punctuates uh, every bit of the more gruesome action. And it's like clockwork. I would go so far as to say he's my general Hux of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, oh. naysayers. <laughs> oh, Andy. <laughs> That was that may have been the last nail. I'm sorry. Uh, William Atherton plays Richard Thornburg. Well, Wolfgang and I are very close friends. <laughs> uh, we, you know, I, we put those back to back for a reason. I think you know Gleason and Atherton. They're they're both uh, just generally terrible. Atherton is so great as the uh, the Nightcrawler reporter, though, isn't he? I mean, I yeah. think that he works so well in this and the next movie. I look forward to talking about him more in Die Hard 2. Me too. How about James Shigeta as Joe Takagi, briefly? I don't have much to say about him other than I think that he does a, an effective job um, playing the, uh, the Japanese uh, businessman who, for some reason, has his Christmas party with his employees still working on Christmas Eve. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, nobody seems to have a problem with that. Well, it was the 80s, man. That's Different right. times. Different times. Uh, Alexander Gudinov as Carl Resky. Oh, Alexander. What uh, a beautiful specimen of a man. I um, loved him in Money Pit, which he did uh, a couple years before this. Yes. Uh, he was so great in that movie. And then here he turns up as Carl. And I just love him. I, he's so interesting because he wasn't really an actor, although he had started acting a little bit before this, um, but he was a ballet dancer, uh, trained uh, classical ba- ballet dancer um, in the USSR, where he defected from in 1979 before coming here and doing more ballet here. And uh, yeah, and then uh, got into acting, only did 10 credits, and, and he uh, sadly died at the age of 45, which is really frightening considering the ages that we are right now. Shut up, Andy. Did I just say that? <laughs> God. Man. <sighs> Breaking it down. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, each side of the, the good versus evil in this film has their own smartass. Devereaux White plays Argyle Clarence Gilliard Jr. as Theo the Hacker. I don't know. Are these guys, uh, are they, am I unfairly pairing them? I mean, you know, Argyle and Theo, uh, it's just, I I think that it works well just because Argyle, uh, he's the one who takes Theo down um, in the ending. Um, I I think they end up being kind of their their own little pair, Um, although largely not across the course of the film. But Argyle is a fun little character to kind of have in in McLean's corner. Theo is a really interesting uh, guy because he's just kind of I don't want to call him a goofball, but he certainly is more of the comedian type that is working with uh, with Hans. Um, and he has got that great lines like you didn't bring me for my uh, for my good looks or whatever he says. For my charming personality. Yeah, for a charming personality. Right? Arguably, I think we did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. Al Long, I put him uh, on here as Uli. He's one of the one of the henchmen, one of the dozen, the, the dirty baker's dozen. Uh, we've this is the second time we've I think this is only the second time we've done a an Al Long movie uh, vehicle, right? Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Have we done have we done any more? No, but we should do Big Trouble in Little China. I don't know why we still have not talked about that film. Yeah, um, probably true. because we're idiots. What's fun about him is that you know you've got this kind of this this group of these German terrorists, and then randomly one of them is this Asian guy. <laughs> it's like oh, <laughs> it's kind of an odd little guy to throw into the German terrorists. But I guess we're trying to you know be you know open and and uh, you know kind of allow for anybody to be part of our terrorist organization, which I think is fantastic. And I do love the moment he's got the best. Uh, I, I think for me the highlight of all the terrorist moments is okay. Here he is in this building, uh, you know taking hostages uh stealing money and all this but then it's like he's about to steal a candy bar and he kind of looks around first like should i do it like (laughs) like debating if he should steal a candy bar or not and what's funny is he grabs a candy bar and then when it cuts back to him later he's eating he has a different wrapper in his hand meaning he's he's gone through several candy bars He, uh, you know, he's best known as a stuntman and uh, as an other guy, right? He's all he's as the the token kind of Asian terrorist gang member, uh, Yakuza. He's it. That, that's kind of his role. But he did direct a film in 2000. He wrote and directed Daddy, Tell Me a Story. And uh, the, the taglines here, finding the truth can be murder. Everyone has a story to tell. Everyone is a suspect. Uh, and I'm, I have never heard of that film, but I know that we should add it on our list pretty quickly. 
It's an um, 8.1 on IMDb. Yeah. Out of eight reviews. <laughs> not, not many reviews, but still. <laughs> and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And there are actually eight people listed in primary cast roles. So I wonder... Who are those I eight wonder people? If there's a connection. <laughs> uh, and one of them is Al Lung uh, as Al Kabong uh, in that movie. So add that to your list, everybody. We'll be talking about that soon. There you go. Um, we do have the two uh, Agent Johnsons, uh, Robert Davy as Special Agent Big Johnson and Grandel Bush as as Agent Little Johnson. No relation. Ah, uh, the Johnsons. Yeah. I love it. Uh, again, foils. It's interesting that all the foils uh, are, uh, you know, the, the police officers, uh, you know, they, they all, you know, it's, that's the, the cultural statement is the police officers are boobs. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and then you have the fantastic moment where Big Johnson, as they're flying in the helicopter, oh, this is just like the jungles of Nam. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, right. oh boy, uh, here we go. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yep. Uh, we all have guns and are part of gangs. That's Isn't that what we learned last week? I'm surprised that we didn't, uh, that neither of us looked up. Um, we don't have any IMFDB information on this movie, which we should. But we if should. anyone were to do that, it would be Agent Johnson. He's the one who would be all over the IMFDB chart <laughs> <That's right. laughs> this that's movie. Right. And then, and then I just had to say, Rick Duckerman, um, you know, he's one of those little actors who pops up here and there. We talked about him in Groundhog Day. Um, and here he's just got the random little moment of Walt, the city worker, who's, you know, popping out of the manhole cover. <laughs> Such a funny little bit. <laughs> this movie opened July 13th, 1988. And uh, of, of note, you know, we still talk about these special releases, the big releases. And this was one, even in 88, they were still talking about... Uh, the fact that it opened in 25 cities in 70 millimeter six track Dolby, and uh, this was uh, Bruce Willis was promoting this movie on Oprah. And at the time, if you go find this interview, you'll see he's dressed like Don Johnson. I don't know why I find that weird. Uh, and he's he says, you know, it opened it's opening this way in only 25 cities, and that's something we haven't done since Star Wars. He says. Uh, so that was that was still a big deal in 88. And in 88, I still have it in my head that we were seeing movies pretty regularly in 70 mil. But uh, I guess that was already a thing. Time has eroded. I wonder if it was more of uh, production. I think more of it might have just been the uh, the six track Dolby. I, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I you know, I think the pair of it, the, the 70 millimeter. Mm. And the six-track Dolby, I think it's it's an interesting set of uh, of things to be aware of because I don't think that they actually shot this in seventy millimeter, did they? No, I don't think so. Yeah, so that's interesting that they must have done yeah. a blow up for it. So this, of course, is the movie that uh, spawned the the whole idea of Die Hard in a uh, movies, uh, or at least as far as the way that people would pitch movies, right? So you'd have oh, it's Die Hard, but but in a on a uh, in a battleship and that was under siege. Die Hard in an airplane was fa- passenger fifty seven. Die Hard on a bus. Die Hard on an island. Die Hard at the White House. Uh, Die Hard with snakes <laughs> on a plane. You know, it's it, it's all of a sudden it was just like this never ending idea of being able to pitch this thing. And I think that it's funny that you know it, it created this whole concept of this this one man against this uh, multitude of bad guys in kind of an isolated setting. And it kind of created its own thing. Talk to me about Frank Lloyd Wright, Andy. 
Uh, yeah, this movie. Uh, I think it's funny that the uh, the the production designer um, latched onto this whole idea of Frank Lloyd Wright as kind of a, a concept for uh, the the Japanese construction here, and where you know the thirtieth floor where the holiday party is, you've got this recreation of Frank Lloyd Wright's designed house, Falling Water, which has this large rock with water dripping from it um, right in the center of it, and his whole concept was that Nakatomi had all this money; they bought this whole Frank Lloyd Wright design only to reassemble it in the uh, in their lobby of their building, which was very funny. And then, of course, at the uh, in the uh, part where um, where uh, they uh, they uh, bring uh, Takagi, you have that really interesting bridge design, the model where uh, Hans is talking about building models and everything. The model right there is actually Frank Lloyd Wright's butterfly wing bridge model, which is something that they had brought in to uh, to put on display as if it was theirs. So nice little nods to the design of Frank Lloyd Wright. Benefits of a classical education. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you know, you found the Guys Night music video. Oh, the my. Die Hard Guys Night music video. Andy, that is brilliant. <laughs> I, you know what's? I don't know what's more brilliant is watching them, or watching their video, or watching their interview talking about the video because they're talking about their buddy John McClane and how John McTiernan. Uh, had gone in and made this documentary about him and everything. It's, I mean, they're absurd. Just listening to these guys talk, it's very funny. But the music video is just fantastic. Uh, you know, kind yeah. of celebrating at least the first four films. Good stuff. And and that they keep adding to it, right? I mean, that's the idea, right? Because they did it originally with three. Is that what you told me? And then they went back and added four. They added four. Um, yeah, per the studio. The studio actually, um, uh pulled the plug on them because um, they were using footage from the movies um, only to realize, hey, these guys might actually be able to help us uh, do some uh, unique marketing for the fourth movie. So let's let's bring them back in and let's let them use it and they can write another another round. Although I don't think oh, they did so for the good. fifth movie. So, Ugh, but everybody needs to watch it at least once. <laughs> Stupid licensing. So we'll put that in the show notes. That's awesome. Uh, how to do it award season. For an action film, I guess you could say it did well in its uh, the expected categories. It had seven wins and six nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Sound, lost to uh, Clint Eastwood's Bird, um, Best Film Editing, Best uh, Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects, lost to Who Framed Roger Rabbit for all of those. Um, but it's Rightfully kind of, so. Yeah, it's, it, that, was, that was a pretty groundbreaking film. Um, but still, it was nice to see that it did get nomination nominations for it. And it did, you know, a few other places it did, the film itself did get recognized, like the Japanese Academy uh, nominated or had it win for best foreign language film. So obviously, we're doing this as a as a launch of our Die Hard series. So clearly, there are sequels. Yes, we will be uh, talking about the sequels. And I guess we're not necessarily talking about the prequel, but we'll certainly be just having it in our conversation, the fact that there is talk of a prequel being made, right? From what I understand, it's not a complete prequel. So it's a prequel, but it does take place in two timelines. So um, we will see Bruce Willis's John McClane if this thing gets made. And, and and a lot of the movie will be told through flashback. So does that make it a prequel sequel? Yes, it does. It does. Now it does. <laughs> a sprequel? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So uh, that's that's the the unfortunate reality of whatever comes next in the Die Hard universe. But we are going to be talking about the others. Oh yes. Did you ever play any of the video games? 
I didn't. I uh, although now we know that uh, at least uh, Reginald Bell Johnson did uh, make an appearance in several of them. I need an I need an emulator, man. I want to play that something fierce. <laughs> That's hilarious. I never read the comic book either, but I I know they did adapt it. It's it's been a popular enough film where uh, just this year, 2017, the U.S. National Film Registry uh, did select it for preservation. So um, yeah, it's it's a popular one. Let's do the numbers. So uh, McTiernan's action thriller cost a wee $28 million to make, which is so funny uh, thinking about it. Uh, $56.8 million in today's dollars, which is just so small of a budget considering what modern action budgets cost, right? Uh, the movie had a limited 21 screen release on uh, July 15th, 1988, opposite Clint Eastwood's The Deadpool and Disney's Bambi reissue. Uh, didn't make much of a splash and Coming to America still held the number one spot. Did have a much wider release uh, the a week later on the 22nd, opposite Midnight Run, Big Top Pee Wee, and Caddyshack 2, but still only hit third, coming in behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was on its fifth week of release, and Coming to America in its fourth. In fact, this movie only ever got up to second place, which was in its fifth week of release. That being said, it did hold strong in second, third, or fourth spot each week for... Um, for 12 straight weeks, lasting in theaters for 16 weeks. The movie did end up grossing $83 million domestically and $57.8 million internationally, making a total of $285.7 million in today's dollars. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 1988 and the third highest grossing R-rated film that year. Rain Man was number one in both cases. All told, the movie ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.7 million. Certainly a great success for such a great film. I, uh, while you were reading, I don't want you to think I don't pay attention to you, but what I'm really paying attention to <laughs> is this fantastic YouTube walkthrough, 16 minutes of the first of Die Hard Nakatomi Plaza, which was actually released on PC in 2002. Oh my. And it, it is a first-person shooter, and I am, I'm in it now. <laughs> I'm watching it right now, and uh, this is this is fantastic. It's like the, the audio is all straight from the movie, uh, all the way down to "Come on, come to Papa, I'll kiss your effing Dalmatian." Like they've got the whole thing. It's great. That's hilarious, <laughs> right? Oh man, I'm, I can tell what's going to happen to my day. <laughs> Consider it gone. I love that we're talking about this series, Andy. I don't know what else there is to say other than great movie makes me want to kiss a Dalmatian. <laughs> I already have. No, it's it is a fantastic movie and uh definitely a uh a Christmas favorite, uh, something that we always love to watch, uh one of my wife's and my favorite films to watch together and uh yeah, I'm glad we're uh, doing the whole series. I I I love uh most of these films. I have some uh issues there uh throughout, but it's an awfully fun series of films to watch. Although I still haven't seen the fifth one. This is going to be my first time finally watching the fifth one. Really? Yeah. Oh. I'm excited about that. I can't wait for that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Then it's time, Andy. It's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our list of movies or swipe over in your show notes and you'll see a link to flickchart. That'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your catalog and let's see how they stack up. Where do we start? First up, Die Hard or Star Trek Beyond? Uh, Die Hard. Definitely Die Hard. Die Hard or... Seven Samurai, Kurosawa, and uh, one of his uh, great films. I'm still going Die Hard, though. 
I'm going Die Hard. I feel like this is going to be a movie of shoulds. I know I should pick Seven Samurai, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not going to. Well, maybe. We'll see. Die Hard or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? Die Hard. Die Hard for me. Die Hard or Children of Men? Die Hard for me. Die Hard, yeah. Die Hard or Jaws? Ooh, sorry. Yeah, I'm going with Jaws. Jaws. But boy, it's getting up there. Die Hard or Inception? I'm going to say Die Hard. I'm going to say Inception. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's uh, let's uh, yeah. let's do a little Rochambeau, shall we? Here we here we go. All right. One, two, three. Rock, scissors. Rock. I, was, I don't feel bad about that. I was tempted to say glass, <laughs> <laughs> but only if you would say bare feet. I, I, <laughs> Oh, that's so good. <laughs> we have to add that because rock beats. Oh, see, the problem is rock, scissors, and glass beat bare feet. <laughs> bare feet's a tough one. <laughs> it is. It is. really is. Okay, next up, we have Die Hard or Touch of Evil. Die Hard. Yeah, I'm going to say Die Hard. Die Hard or Groundhog Day. Die Hard for me. Oh, that's a tough hard, one, though. Yeah. Yeah. Not that tough. Not that. That's really not that tough. Well, that puts Die Hard at number 11 on our flick chart. Number 11 out of 331. I That's fascinating. How did it How did it get there? We picked Die Hard every single choice, and it only made it to 11? Jaws. Jaws is oh, number Jaws. 10. Oh, yeah. Jaws. Jaws, Jaws, That's right. We didn't pick it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and, and I'm assuming that this ends up as a, as a five-star and a heart for you. Oh, absolutely. This movie is on my own personal chart. It's 45 out of 38.85, which puts it at a 99%. So, I mean, this is absolutely just a, one of my all-time favorites. Always will be. I just, I, you know, like I said, there might be quibbles, but they're lovable quibbles <laughs> that I have with it. <laughs> I really just enjoy absolutely everything in this film, and uh, I love watching it. Lovable quibbles. <laughs> Are oh, they quibbles dear. if you love them? <laughs> Are they? <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is for me also. Uh, but weirdly, it's fifty-seven on my playchart. I must have run into some things when I ranked this the first time. Fifty-seven out of one thousand six. So technically, that should be a four and a half star at, at, at ninety-four out of a hundred. But uh, it's definitely a, a five star. Something is something is amiss on my chart. Screwy. Something is screwy. Yes, indeed. Something screwy. Yeah. Uh, but this is a fantastic film. Okay. That means next week we're running straight into Die Hard 2, yep. where we will presumably die harder. <laughs> presumably, yes, indeed. Yeah, two years later, uh, we're going to be jumping into that uh, Rennie Harlan action film. So it'll be interesting to see his take on this franchise. Uh, this is awesome. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, downloading, listening. Thanks for your patience. This is another long one, but, uh, you know, our favorite films deserve uh, long conversations. So uh, I, I think that's it. This movie has ended, Andy, and you know what happens when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. It's the holidays. Oh, Amazon's goodness. giving. Amazon is so <laughs> giving. But not to the people who feel deeply wronged by Amazon. No, not, not to them. This movie has ruined actually a series of holidays, according to the collection of reviews. It's ruined, what What did you find? A Valentine's uh, Day? 
Okay, yeah. Valentine's Day is ruined. Christmas has definitely been ruined. Uh, all thanks to Amazon. I haven't found an Arbor Day yet, but I'm always on the lookout for Amazon ruined my Arbor Day. Um, but what we do have, while there aren't very many one star reviews, we do have a few that are that are uh, delicious. Yes, we do. Well, my first one is from OKG853, who says this movie is highly overrated. I agree with Duh Hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a play on Die Hard. <laughs> oh, they're clever. First, the positive. Bruce Willis is very nice eye candy. But in addition to being too long, it has too many characters. It's so predictable. It tries too hard. And as a result, it's laughable. It reminded me of The Towering Inferno. I fell asleep watching it. Ouch. Oh, that's too bad. So again, a review that is bad based on a movie. This person hasn't seen the entire thing. I'm sorry. Oh, we love those. Mm-hmm. Duh hard. Duh hard. Well, I've got a one star uh, that uh, is labeled a kid's review, and it says inter- <laughs> inappropriate. <laughs> yes, this is this is the R-rated film. I bought this for my three-year-old and was shocked to see how violent and filthy it was. The F word was used many times, and there were many scenes with shooting and death and violence. Terrible. By the way, I'm posting my name the way it is, so nobody will know my email address. (laughs) Probably smart. Probably. There is nothing in this movie that indicates it's for kids. What? Especially a three-year-old kid. (laughs) I love the the comments are so good. If only there was some way the content was rated so you could figure this out before showing it to your kids. (laughs) Good point. I've always felt this was very odd for a Disney movie. Oh, maybe oh, Disney will God. do an animated remake. <laughs> if they can do an animated <laughs> Hunchback of Notre Dame, why not an animated Die Hard? <laughs> or the best. I disagree. My three-year-old loved this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Merry oh, Christmas, Amazon. So many other things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. 